Hello, everyone. This is Sean from the SRB podcast. As you know, the podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. Now, every semester, we do a center newsletter where we spotlight a few of our faculty. So instead of doing a paragraph or a short interview, I decided to create these audio profiles of our featured faculty. You might remember two others from the past of Olga Klimova and Katie Manukian. That way, you can hear them in their own words talking about their work, their teaching, and their general interests. This faculty spotlight is on James Pickett, who teaches Russian history in the University of Pittsburgh's History Department, and author of the recently published Polymaths of Islam, Power and Networks of Knowledge in Central Asia. Here's James talking about what got him interested in Islam and Central Asia, his research on Bukhara as an Islamic center, and how he fits Central Asia and empire into his Russian history classes. Enjoy! You know, if you think about uh, a lot of typical studies of the Russian Empire, there are many different stories to be told. There are many different aspects of it. And Central Asia is one of those slices, right? So that, so I think that the constant awareness of how far what you study and research is considered from the, from the authentic center, um, I think it helps you look at, at, at other parts of the empire in new ways. My name is James Pickett. I'm an assistant professor uh, in the history department at the University of Pittsburgh. Most generally, uh, my work focuses on history of uh, Islam in Eurasia, uh, and I focus on the 19th through early 20th centuries. But as far as what got me interested in Islam, that, that, that's hard. I, you know, again, I just, I always have been. I don't really know why. Uh, yeah, you know what I think it is? Like, it's, it's kind of interesting. I, so when I, I was really into board games when I was in high school. And some of the board games had, uh, you know, a, a sort of a fantastical Middle East um, theme to them. And, and I think that is what got me to start actually reading the history. But more from the intellectual side of it, uh, it was actually more about Soviet history, even though that's not what my work is on now that really pulled me in. I mean, I remember as an undergraduate, at least as a freshman, I didn't even know that there, there, there were large parts of the Muslim world uh, that were part, that had been part of the Soviet Union. And so when I learned that, um, you know, that, that Central Asia was a, a um, you know, both Muslim and, according to state ideology, atheist. I just found that so fascinating that it pulled pulled me into the field. So my work focuses on uh, cultural and social history uh, in Central Asia, especially uh, in centered around the city of Bukhara, which is now uh, located in Uzbekistan um, uh, in the 19th and early 20th century. But there's actually a kind of a direct bridge between my earlier interest in Soviet uh, history and Islam and what I came to do for my dissertation, which is just that there's more Tajiks living you know, on paper in Af Afghanistan than there are in Tajikistan. So I was expecting having spent a number of years li living and, and studying in, and studying Central Asia and spending time li living in the region, I thought that when I got off that plane, you know, I, there, I'd see lots of cultural continuities. And of course, there are they are there. But what it really drove home was that um, this 20th century uh, of Sovietization was incredibly consequential uh, in terms of shaping the trajectories of these of these territories. The time period that I study, that wasn't the case. As you could, you, as in, what I mean by that is. 
you could cross the Oxus River, the Amudarya, from what is now Uzbekistan or Tajikistan into Afghanistan, and you'd be part of the same uh, cultural world. And that just fascinated me. I wanted to to study the understand why that was, why there was a common cultural continuum uh, that transcended what we not only what we think of as countries and sort of national histories, but also area studies. Uh, like it, trans, it goes across the border of what is usually even considered Central Asia today. Bukhara's cultural history goes back, uh, you know, a long ways, over a thousand years, uh, and then it becomes a very important cultural center uh, in in Islamdom uh, already in the eighth, ninth centuries. So one of the things that my book that just came out, Polymaths of Islam, argues, so there's generally a sense that it went into a decline uh, sometime in the early modern period, um, and then especially in the 19th century, because of course people think, well, you know, under Russian rule, of course, that's going to be a major setback for the city. But actually, uh, you know, the, in terms of investment in cultural infrastructure, both in terms of, uh, you know, uh, uh, institutions, but also physical infrastructure that support those institutions. Um, the 19th century, in some ways, is a crescendo or a high point. So they, they're they're investing in in dozens and dozens of new madrasas, which are Islamic colleges, which uh, create the basis for a massive educational class. Uh, and this continues in uh, like within the Russian Empire. Bukhara is a uh, uh, Unofficially a protectorate. Legally, it's a it's an independent country with uh, a series of unequal treaties with the Russian Empire. But because it has that space as a as a protectorate, as an indirectly ruled territory, uh, the the local government of Bukhara within the Russian Empire, again under Russian auspices, in some ways even has more resources to invest in Islamic cultural network works and Islamic in, uh, uh, knowledge institutions. So if you're looking at raw numbers in terms of number of students that Bukhara can uh, can support, it's on par with number of madrasas with Istanbul. Uh, so and of course the Bukharan as an emirate and as a protectorate is nowhere you know it's not comparable to the Ottoman Empire obviously, but in terms of an educational network, it actually is serving as a center for a vast region, including the Muslim parts of Russia, but also Western China, especially northern what is now northern Afghanistan. But but for if you think of it, you can think of Bukhara as kind of the center, the educational center for sort of Central Asia, what we think of today as Central Asia plus like plus as in also including parts of South Asia, also including most of Russia. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. The um the Orenburg Spiritual Assembly, uh, so that's only for direct directly ruled territory. Uh, so Muslims living in directly ruled territories go through the Orenburg Spiritual Assembly. When the Russian Empire conquered, first con- uh, conquered Muslim territories, one of the things that they the, the empire found confusing and, and dif- difficult to map to, to existing imperial policies that were built on earlier experiences was that uh, Islam doesn't usually have a, uh, a hierarchy, which is one of the reasons that a lot of scholars object to translating ulama as clergy, because there's not really a, a hierarchy associated with a state. So the Orenburg Spiritual Assembly is built on the Orthodox Christian model and simply applies that to Islam. And so, and it basically works. Muslims start interacting with the state through that institution. 
how do we get from there to uh, you know when the um, to to Central Asia where you really do have more of a colonial situation where like the local where the Russians themselves are comparing themselves to British and French Empire and with this dramatic uh, dichotomy between colonizer and conquered. So Russia goes from some some from a something not that doesn't look like modern or like modern imperialism and colonialism to something that does. And the Caucasus are a big you know a big part of that you know, as in. The drawn out uh, struggle there uh, is where you see the emergence of a lot of ideas of Muslim fanaticism that are just already pre-canned by the time they, the, the, the Russian Empire gets to Central Asia in the late 1860s. And therefore, uh, it would be better just to keep them, to, to ignore them. That was literally the ignore Ravania, right? Like the, that was the state policy. So, so they, you know, so they, they weren't integrated in that way in Russian Turkestan. And then in, in, um, in Bukhara, they, they weren't really intermediaries with the Russian state in any institutionalized way at all, because they were, you know, they were, they were interacting with the Bukharan government, which was, which was autonomous. So. أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله. You know, a lot of the time students have enrolled in a course about Central Asia be, precisely because they know nothing about it. You know, I think in a in a kind of uh, challenging way, the most exotic thing they can think of in the course catalog, practically. I think there's a lot of advantages that go with that. You know, they're they're excited to learn. It's not in my experience that that hasn't really led to a you know they're they're not coming in with a lot of uh, you know sort of stereotypes about Oriental despotism or anything like that. Uh, it's more just complete blank slate in a good way, I think, and so that's very exciting to teach. So there's a lot of ways that the Russian Empire worked and the Mongol Empire worked, for instance, that is not unique necessarily. So there, there are other empires that also worked that way. So the students can think about it in terms of analogy. Uh, in the case of the Mongols, we spend a lot of time talking about the nature of nomadic empires, empires of the steppe, uh, which actually do have a lot of things in common, a lot of uh, you know patterns you can point to. And similarly, for the in the, in the ways in, the, in broad strokes, the ways that Russia was a multi-confessional empire, meaning that they they the empire ran by interacting through these confessional arrangements and institutions. A lot of that actually has uh, parallels in the Ottoman Empire, uh, has parallels even in you know sort of uh, even in my my one of my Islam classes about in the Abbasid Caliphate things like that. So so I think those kinds of comparisons can be helpful for helping students go from nothing, which is, you know, again, great uh, part of the appeal to, to something to work with. Being situated in Central Asia for my own research makes me fixate on things in, the, in Russian history that actually aren't necessarily Central Asia, but help me understand what I do better. And you, so the, 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 the struggle between Muscovy and uh, Poland is a ma- is a big one. So, which becomes a str- like a struggle to control the the Ukrainian borderlands, basically, right? So, I frame my Imperial Russia course early on partly as a long-standing geopolitical struggle between those two imperial ideas, not a national struggle between the Russians and the Poles, but rather a, str- a struggle between Russia as an empire and the Poland-Lithuanian Commonwealth as an empire. It, obviously, that it gets partitioned in the late 18th century, but a lot that's that region, even into the revolution, uh, remains an area that that of constant um, conflict and, and constant uh, struggle between these two imperial ideas. What does that have to do with Central Asia? In both the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire, many of the the of the policies that get applied to Central Asia weren't developed for Central Asia. They were ways of doing things, either intentionally or just sort of path dependently over time, that were hashed out to try and control that Western borderland territory. Once the students uh, have that under control, then some of the ways that uh, that Russia applied that later on in places like Central Asia can actually make a lot more sense in the context of a Russian history course. Mm-hmm.